series is to introduce to you the Reformation as an event. Right? We're all familiar with the idea of the Protestant Reformation as something that gave rise to religious divisions within Western Christianity. Maybe some of us who have studied history are even familiar with the idea that the Protestant Reformation gave rise to political divisions within Western civilization. It gave rise to violence and wars and, and great strife. And it leaves us with this legacy of, of a divided Christianity in the West today. Um, but few of us are acquainted with the context in which the Reformation occurred. You know, many of us are familiar with the great names associated with the Protestant Reformation. We're familiar with names like Luther and Calvin, maybe even, uh, maybe even Swingley and Melanchthon and names like this. On the Catholic side, we're familiar with other names. We're familiar with names like Pius V, the Council of Trent, great men, great events. But rarely do you find someone who's acquainted with the context in which the Reformation occurs. Right? And this is what's critical, and this is what we're going to try to obtain a sense of over the course of the next three Tuesday nights, a sense of the context in which the Reformation occurs, which will allow us to understand how it's able to happen in the way that it does. Right? Because we all know the Protestant Reformation shatters the religious unanimity of the West. It shatters the, the unanimity of Western Christian civilization. And so the question is ultimately, how could this happen? Right? How can you take a, a civilization that's based in its very first principles upon a unified belief in Christ and in Christ's church and suddenly shatter that unanimity, tear that civilization apart into multiple warring factions? Right? And um, there are a few different approaches to explaining how great events like this can occur in history. Frequently, you'll see uh, you'll see it asserted. For example, the idea that that one man, you know, one one great man with his powerful will or with his bizarre ideas could somehow change the course of history. And of course, to some extent, that's true. One man can influence history. But nevertheless, in the case of something as complex and as multifaceted as the Protestant Reformation, what we're going to try to see is that the leading figures in the Reformation, people like Luther and Calvin, were not operating in a vacuum. Right? These men were creatures of their context. And the events that they precipitated had had the ground prepared for them by centuries worth of development in Western civilization, centuries worth of change that had been taking place within Western civilization prior to the time of the great reformers, Luther and John Calvin. And so I'm going to talk about some of the historical events that actually precede the Reformation and make the Reformation possible. Right? And then I'm going to uh, give way, I'm going to concede the floor to my colleague, uh, who's a philosopher, and he's going to talk about the changes in the way that philosophy was practiced and taught in Western universities leading up to the Protestant Reformation. Um, first of all, in order to understand the, these principal reformers as creatures of their context and not as isolated individuals who are operating in a vacuum, what we have to realize is that this, this towering figure of Martin Luther comes at a time when the very face of Western civilization has already been fundamentally altered from what it was during the Middle Ages. Right? Luther was born in the year 1483. So he's born late in the 15th century. Uh, he lived until 1546. So you're talking about a man whose lifetime spans the late 15th, early 16th centuries. right? And so if you're wondering how is it that this man could single-handedly have shattered uh, the unanimity and faith that characterized the Christian Middle Ages, the answer is, of course, that he could not have. 
right? The unanimity of faith that characterized the Christian Middle Ages had already been severely tested by the time of Luther's life. Right? And so there are a few developments that we're going to take a look at. Right? In the first place, we have to take a look at the decline of the papacy after the confusion. The decline of the papacy as an institution is perceptible in Western society as early as the 13th century. And so you might ask me, what, what precisely do I mean by the decline of the papacy as an institution? You know, what, what could I possibly mean by that? Well, most of you are probably familiar with the role that the papacy played in Western society in the Middle Ages, right? It was more than simply what the Pope does today. The Pope was more than a religious leader in the Middle Ages, right? We're all familiar with this idea, this very basic idea, right? In fact, what was really the, the characteristic aspect of the medieval political and religious reality in Western Europe was the fact that the papacy as an institution was the single most prestigious and authoritative voice, not only religiously, but also politically uh, in the Western world. Uh, and we see all kinds of evidence of this, particularly in the 11th, 12th, and early 13th centuries. Right, for example, we see in the 11th century, the popes effectively go to war with spiritual weapons against the German emperors who are fighting with physical weapons. And it's a contest over who's going to be the supreme leader of the Christian West. And of course, the popes emerge victorious from this struggle, using their, their spiritual weapons of correction and excommunication. Popes like Gregory VII and Urban II waged this war successfully against the German emperors and emerged victorious as the leading figures in all of Western Christendom. Now, this position that the papacy held as the leading institution in Western Christendom was severely challenged by events in the 13th century, particularly by the centralization of kingdoms. The centralization of kingdoms in the Christian West is something that was evident as early as the time of Louis IX. Right? In the middle part of the 13th century, we see King Louis IX, unlike previous French kings, is able to exercise an extraordinary level of authority over his nobles and over regional authorities. He's able to collect taxes, not only from lay lords, but also from the church. Right? And as a result, the, the authority of the king in a European kingdom like France is aggrandized to a level that had been previously unknown in Western history. Now, why is that important? Why is that damaging to the unity of Western Christendom, and why is that damaging to the status of the papacy as an institution, you might ask? And the answer is that weak kings, weak kings were essential for the papacy playing the role that it played as the leader of the Western world in the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries. Right. Kings in the 11th century never really had the power or the, the authority or the standing or the prestige to stand up against the papacy on any point. It would not have been possible. Yet things have changed. You can see that things have changed certainly by the later part of the 13th and beginning of the 14th centuries. Right. A struggle takes place that's really symptomatic of the state of the papacy at the end of the 13th and beginning of the 14th centuries. And you might be familiar with this a little bit. This is the, the struggle between Pope Boniface VIII and uh, King Philip IV of France. 
Now, the nature of the struggle between Bond Street and Philip IV it involves a lot of details that aren't entirely relevant. It has to do with the right of the king to tax the church in various particular ways. It has to do with the privileges enjoyed by the monarchy vis-a-vis -vis the church in France. But the point that we want to make about this struggle is that the, the struggle of Boniface VIII and Philip IV, circa, circa the year 1300 or so, reveals the papacy as a far weaker institution vis-a-vis -vis the kings than it had ever been previously during the Middle Ages. Now why, you might ask, some of you with a little bit of knowledge of Boniface VIII, you might say to yourselves, well, for crying out loud, Boniface VIII is the guy who spouts the most grandiose kinds of assertions about the nature of, of papal authority, more so than other medieval popes, more so, more so than Innocent III, for goodness sakes. Boniface VIII is the one who makes these almost outrageous, even to Catholic ears, claims about the nature of papal authority. Right? So isn't this the apogee of papal authority? And the answer is no. No, Boniface VIII's rhetoric must not be mistaken for substance. The, the extreme nature of Boniface VIII's rhetoric should rather be taken as evidence of his weakness. All right, Boniface VIII is, in fact, losing his struggle with Philip IV. Boniface VIII ends his life in the custody of Philip IV's soldiers, right, which this, this would have been unimaginable at an earlier age in papal history. Right, so the weakness of the papacy as an institution vis-a-vis -vis the kings, vis-a-vis -vis the kings of Europe, who by this time have centralized their governments, uh, centralized taxation, increased their revenue, their power, and their authority to the point that they can actually compete with the papacy as unifying forces within Western Europe. The result is, of course, that you have now various centers of authority in the different monarchical capitals, as opposed to a single center of authority at Rome. So does that make sense? By the time we get to the 14th century, um, the, the political supremacy of the Pope as the figure who's really at the head of Western Christendom, with the plenitude of jurisdiction over Western Christendom, is really being challenged pretty successfully by these kings. Philip IV is just one of many in the 14th century who challenged this. Something else that you begin to see in the 14th century, which would have been unheard of at an earlier time, is the scrutiny of the papacy as an institution. Right? The theological and philosophical scrutiny of the papacy. In other words, people actually publishing theological and philosophical tracts asking what is the papacy and why do we need it? Right? This is something that would have been unheard of in the Middle Ages. And earlier in the Middle Ages, um, tracts that discussed papal authority were either produced by the papacy itself you know, or were produced as a result of the dialogue between the papacy and Eastern Christendom, right? between the papacy and Byzantium, in which the nature of papal authority was discussed. But in the Christian West, in Western Europe, it would have been unheard of for a figure uh, like Barsilio of Padua, for example, to compose a text like the text that he composed in the 14th century, his famous text, Defensor Pachis. Um, and of course, what Marsilio of Padua argues in this text, is that the papacy is the biggest problem in European society, that the papacy is in fact unnecessary and needs to be removed, right? that in fact kings and ecumenical councils are a more reliable and peaceful source of authority within Western society. So these types of developments are alarming. Right? These types of developments are indicative of the preparation of the ground for Luther's career. Right. Other developments in the 14th century might be familiar to us as well. Have you heard of the Avignon Papacy? Mm -hmm. yes. Yes. what the Avignon Papacy is? You know, the Avignon Papacy was 
founded almost by accident. Uh, it's in the aftermath of Boniface VIII's death that Pope Clement V is elected. Now, Pope Clement V never really had any intention of moving the papacy away from Rome. It's just that at the time of his election, Clement V was too feeble to travel to Rome. Clement V was a bishop in France, and he, he kept putting off his journey to Rome. He said, yeah, you know, if I have to go, go to Rome, that means I have to go over the Alps. And if I go over the Alps, you know, it's the summertime, it's too hot, I'll wait till it gets cooler. And then it gets cool, and I say, all right, we're ready to go. No, it's, it's wintertime. <laughs> we'll be snowed in up there. Come on, don't be ridiculous. And then it starts to warm up. Oh, no, it's too hot. You know, I, I might die on the journey. In any event, he lasts a few years, and he, then he simply dies uh, in 1309 or so, not ever having gone to Rome. Right? Now, since he dies in France, the election of his successor is held in France, and that his successors simply follow the precedent set by Clement V of not, not really bothering to go down to Rome. Uh, and so the, the city of Rome, in the absence of the papal court in the 14th century, fell to, into a state of grave decay. You know, it's kind of maybe perhaps symbolic of the state into which the papacy itself had fallen in the 14th century. If you visited Rome in the middle of the 14th century, you could have gone to St. Peter's Square, but what you would have seen there would shock you. It would have looked like Chernobyl. They had grass growing waist high in between the, the cobblestones in the middle of St. Peter's Square. People would have their goats grazing on the tall thistles that grew in the middle of St. Peter's Square. Rome was virtually in a state of ruin in the 14th century, but in large part because the economy, the urban economy of the city depended on the presence of the papal court. Right. And so in point of fact, the, the absence of the papacy from Rome is an extraordinary drain, not only on the resources of the city, but on the prestige of the institution. The prestige of the papacy as an institution suffers as a result of its, as it were, captivity in France. Now, the return of the papacy from France to Rome also occurs by accident. Right? It was, uh, you'll remember, it was Pope Gregory, uh, Pope Gregory the Eleventh who, of course, made the journey back to Rome from France. He got to Rome. He found the grass growing in St. Peter's Square. He decided he didn't like it there, made plans to leave, and then God killed him. <laughs> no, he, he ended up dying in Rome before he could leave. Now, the result of that, of course, was that his conclave had to be held in Rome. Right? This was the custom, right? Wherever the Pope died, that's where the conclave had to be held. So, of course, the College of Cardinals now has to gather in Rome. So they're gathering in Rome to elect a successor to Pope Gregory XI. And who's gathering outside the conclave? The Romans. The Romans, yeah. <laughs> the Romans. Now, the, the, the conclave that elected Gregory XI's successor is one of the most controversial conclaves, if not the most controversial conclave in the history of the church. And it gives rise to an even greater drain on the prestige of the papacy as an institution. Um, to make a long story short, what happened was the mob outside was agitating for the cardinals to elect a Roman. Right? They wanted the cardinals to elect a Roman as pope, as opposed to a Frenchman or, or someone from elsewhere in Italy, someone who might once again move the papal court away from the city of Rome. For obvious reasons, the Romans want the papacy to stay there. And so, in fact, the cardinals, fearing for their lives, um, brought out um, uh, uh, kind of the, this very elderly Roman cardinal, and they announced, hey, this guy's pope, you know, we'll, we'll pretend to elect him. They paraded him out as pope, the mob cheered. Then when the mob had been removed, the conclave reconvened and elected the guy that they really wanted, a guy named, who took the papal name of Urban VI, 
Urban VI was not a Roman. He was, in fact, the Archbishop of Bari prior to his election. He was not a member of the College of Cardinals, and he wasn't present at the conclave. So he was elected to the papacy, and as soon as Urban VI became pope, he started clashing with the cardinals. Now, even though you might say, okay, the, the cardinals pretended to elect that elderly fellow, right? Then when the mob had cleared, they legitimately elected Urban VI, right? You can't really go back on it, can you? But of course, that's precisely what the cardinals want to do. After they start clashing with Urban VI, many of the cardinals got together and claimed, in fact, that the mob had influenced their decision, that the mob had rendered the conflict <coughs> null and void, carried out under duress. They therefore renounced their election of Urban VI after he had taken office. They elected an anti-pope, and thus began the Great Western Schism, right? one of the most damaging events in the history of the papacy as an institution. It lasted from 1378 all the way to 1415, right? when it was resolved by the various competing papal claimants getting together at an ecumenical council, all of them resigned, and a successor was elected. Right? So in fact, the, the damage that's done to the reputation of the papacy as an institution is absolutely immense through all of these events. The papacy in the 15th century no longer has the kind of just implicit, unquestioned moral authority that it had enjoyed earlier in the Middle Ages. Right? Now, there are other developments, too, that are going to seriously kind of um, as it were, confuse things in the, um, in the intellectual sphere and in the religious sphere in Europe in the 14th and 15th centuries. One of these is the advent of an entirely new approach to learning that had been gaining ground in the 14th century. Almost coincidentally, while all of this is going on, while the papacy as an institution is in a state of serious decline, at the same time, the very foundations of philosophy and theology, as they had been understood in the West in the Middle Ages, uh, were being questioned and undermined. Right? Now, the, the nature of this new movement, this new approach to learning uh, that I'm discussing, um, it, it's called humanism in a very general sense. And when we hear the term humanism, this has modern connotations, secular humanism, that sort of thing. But that's not what it meant in the 14th and 15th century. To be a humanist meant that you favored a certain approach to learning, right, which involved not a systematic investigation of questions, as the scholastic philosophers had done in the Middle Ages, but rather the recovery and reading and preservation of ancient texts. Right? So in other words, instead of sitting around in a room discussing a question from various philosophical angles, the humanists proposed, no, let's go back to the sources, back to the ancients. Let's pull out uh, you know, the what the ancient Roman and Greek philosophers and poets would have said. Let's pull out what the scriptures say. Let's pull out the fathers and just look at these ancient texts as a source of our learning, as inspiration for our studies. Right? It's a radically different approach to learning. Now you might say, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with pulling out the ancient texts as inspiration for your learning? Well, nothing really. I mean, it's pretty benign in and of itself, isn't it? There were great humanists who were also profoundly convicted Catholics and, and you know, deep followers of Christ. Petrarch is one of them. You're familiar with Petrarch, 14th century Italian humanist. Uh, in some sense, people see Dante as an early you know, foreshadowing of these guys. Going a little bit later into the 15th and 16th centuries, you have Erasmus, who's a great Catholic humanist and, and one who is very interested in recovering the <coughs> text, particularly the fathers of the church. Right? 
But the problem that humanism presents is that it leads people, it, uh, let's put it this way, it creates an environment in which the very foundations of our understanding of reality could be questioned. Right, in which completely new questions are being introduced, completely new methods for doing philosophy and theology are being introduced in the 14th and 15th centuries. So by the time of Luther's birth, right, all of the, the, the linchpins that had held medieval Western Europe together had been pulled out. Right? The, the, papacy, the papacy as an authoritative and solid institution had been seriously undermined. Right? So that pin had been pulled out. Um, scholasticism, as, and Mark will give you a lot more insight on this, scholasticism had also been questioned and undermined as a means for doing philosophy. Um, with the growth in the authority of kings and the growth in humanism, other, other authority figures, competing authority figures had emerged, and virtually every tradition of Western European life had been called into question by this time. So it's almost the perfect storm of circumstances for a radical reformer to step into and say, hey, look, why do we really need the papacy as an institution? Why do we really need the sacraments? What is the authority for the sacraments in ancient texts? What is, what is the authority on which the papacy bases itself within ancient texts and that sort of thing? And these are the kinds of questions that Martin Luther is going to be asking. So in other words, Martin Luther understood in his context Right. is the only way Martin Luther can be properly understood. Martin Luther was a creature of his context. He was, in many ways, a creation of this you know, very rapidly changing world in the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. Okay. That's a, now, that's where I'm going to have to end. We're going to take a, maybe a 30-second break just to stretch and you know, take a, a sip of water, a glass of water, what have you. Then Mark's going to talk about philosophy. So again, my name is Mark I'm a professor of philosophy, assistant professor of philosophy at, uh, at Christendom College. And I'd like to thank uh, Mr. McGuire for that introduction to our, our study of some of the foundations of the Protestant Reformation. Reformation. And, and I'd like to accentuate a point Mr. Mark McGuire gave uh, uh, at the very beginning of his discussion. And that is to understand what is going on in the theological disputes, the heterodox positions that were asserted by Martin Luther. One has to understand the context of Martin Luther. And certainly, no one thinks in a vacuum. Okay? No one lives in a vacuum. And beyond that, okay, and therefore our historical context, the historical context of Martin Luther himself, is extraordinarily relevant. But I'm here to talk about another aspect, okay? something else that influences Martin Luther's conclusions. When he says that man is like a beast of burden that is pulled back and forth by God and the devil you know, and, and denies of man any kind of freedom of action. Okay. You wonder, what on earth is he talking about? <laughs> what on earth is he talking about? Well, 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 how does he arrive at this position? Okay, and it seems you know, hard to fathom how would he come up with such a conclusion? Okay, when he will hold a position, okay, in certain positions, they're in accord with a certain uh, a tenet called theological voluntarism, which basically reduces moral truth okay, to what God has revealed. Okay. 
And therefore, if God had not revealed anything, man would not be able to understand right from wrong. You might ask, how does it come to that conclusion? Now, we've heard it all said that grace builds on nature. Okay, I think you've probably heard that before. What's also true that theology, okay, or what is God reveals, presupposes a certain amount of natural knowledge. And that is certainly something St. Thomas would hold. And so what I'd like to do to begin our discussion is to identify, first of all, some of the basics. Like, what is philosophy? What is theology? Okay. How are they distinct? Because Martin Luther takes a distinct attitude to philosophy that I will hold prevents him, okay, given what he has presupposed at the natural level, from being disposed to assent to what the church teaches theologically. And that is something that I intend to demonstrate over the course of the subsequent lectures. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Okay, I teach philosophy. Not even my mom has any idea what I do. <laughs> you know, I'm a philosophy professor, mom. She, oh, good, good. Are you getting paid? <laughs> You know, he has no children. You know, it's a good sign. You know. uh, Mom, do you have any idea with philosophy? No, no, no. Does she care? No, 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 no. And maybe as time goes, I'll hope she's open a little bit to some speculative reasoning. She has opened herself to some extent. We have, we have converts to the faith. I myself am a convert. Uh, uh, so I, I converted a little over 12 years ago. My twin brother converted to Catholicism. Okay, and also my mom converted to Catholicism. So hopefully, hopefully she'll convert to, to uh, uh, an openness to philosophical speculative thought. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath. You know? uh, we'll see. So let's just start with a question. It's kind of basic question. Okay. Uh, and by the way, by the way, it was a philosophical question that instigated part of my conversion. Okay? The question. My, my, a, a young girl I dated. You know, young women are often the means by which men uh, come to knowledge of higher things. You know, and, and in many senses, right? And and, and a young woman I dated, uh, who, who was kind of from an upright family. She herself had upright moral values, and that is actually something that I was kind of attracted to. And and, and she asked me a question one night as we we're debating something. You know, it was I was. Uh, kind of vociferously, uh, kind of advocating, uh, you know, the, the, the possibility of, of gay marriage and things. I mean, some positions that you know uh, I, I don't assent to at present. And and uh, and she's like, well, what do you believe is morally right or wrong? Is there anything objectively in and of itself, okay, that is? Uh, I'm like, oh, I don't know. Um, Murder's wrong, I guess, you know, but I, I prided myself on being somewhat intelligent, at least. You know, and, you know, my grades showed something of that, of that effect. But, but, but I had no good answer. And so I had to reconcile that in my head. Is there anything of itself that is intrinsically wrong? Okay, now I'm going to show you, okay, in, in the course of our discussion. Thomas will say we can demonstrate things are right or wrong in two ways. By way of natural reason and by way of faith. Okay. Two means of approaching the same truth that are themselves complementary but nonetheless distinct. Okay. And that's what I hope to, show, uh, to share, share with you a little bit today. 
Now, the way things have evolved is we have this radical dichotomy between faith and science. Okay. Well, this, this dichotomy from, from our rational life, the life of, of a scientist, and the life of a believer, okay, that has become radically separated, okay, was united in a very intimate way okay, in a period that preceded the, uh, the, the, the Reformation. Okay, but, but preceded it significantly. Okay, the great synthesis between faith and reason took place in the middle part of the 13th century. But we already see with the beginning of the 14th century okay, the crumbling of that, that harmony between man's rational life and man's life of faith. That in some ways leads one, like Luther, to affirm the faith against reason or others to affirm man's rational life against the faith. Okay, and so to understand this dichotomy, this false dichotomy between man's life of faith, man's life of reason, let's take a little bit of background into the nature of faith and reason as it's articulated by St. Thomas Aquinas and, and some of the forerunners. Okay. Now, if I ask you, now, now maybe I'm, I, I'm guessing a few of you can give a better answer than my mom, okay, about, the, about what philosophy is. Okay. What would you say? What would you say? Science of all things knowable by reason in the light of their ultimate cause. Okay, this is very good. <laughs> I'm going to get you to talk to my mom. I'm going to get you to talk to my mom. speed dial. We have a woman who knows what she's talking That is the definition okay, that is given by, more or less, by St. Thomas. Now, that hasn't always been the definition of faith and reason. Okay? Has anyone ever heard of another way of, of defining philosophy? It's hard to compete with that, I realize. But, but, but have you ever heard the philosophy as... Well, I was just going to say the definition I heard was love of wisdom. Good, good, good. So let's find a way in which these two definitions are incorporated into the life of the church. Okay? You gave the definition of St. Augustine. You gave the definition of St. Thomas of Okay, how are these reconciled? Okay. Well, for St. Saint, Saint Augustine, okay, Dr. Cutback, I noticed, talks about the confessions. For St. Augustine, okay, he wanted to pursue wisdom wherever it can be found. And he did not make any distinctions, whether it is of a natural truth or by way of natural means, that I come to knowledge of the truth, or whether God reveals it. If knowledge is love of wisdom, and wisdom is God himself, then everything that is true will fall under the domain of philosophy. And therefore, uh, St. Augustine's this very famous quote, that true philosophy <coughs> is identical with true religion. Okay? So we have a notion of philosophy, okay? as simply that which can be known, okay, Irregardless of what means we come to this knowledge. Okay? So let's love of wisdom. Okay? And therefore, everything, even theology, can be said to be philosophical. Okay? Now he came under the influence of the Platonic tradition. And what we know of Plato, okay, is his lovely dialogues. Uh, that, that we're always keen to make always the most in, uh, finite uh, and, 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 and precise distinctions. But we're, we're great efforts in, in, of, 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 the, of the human mind and of, of his literary genius to expose man to wisdom. 
Now, what we remember of Aristotle, okay, is a little bit different. We often, at least what's come down to us, is simply his class notes, okay? Aristotle wrote lovely dialogues, Cicero talked about them. But what we have, what has come down to posterity, is simply his class notes. And the central part of what was known about uh, Aristotle and what distinguished him is his logic. And so Aristotle was keen to make definitions and divisions. And therefore, this idea of philosophy's love of wisdom that does not distinguish the means by which truth is known is the, the, the predominant paradigm, if you will, that, 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 that follows St. Augustine for a significant uh, period of time. Okay, so St. Augustine dies, so he dies in 430. Okay? Uh, and from him, and he, he dies as, as you know, kind of during the collapse, Rome was sacked for the first uh, in, in time in 410. Okay? And, and from this time, okay, with especially the, the dissolution of, or uh, the dissimulation of, 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 uh, of Rome and the Western Empire, uh, the, the lasting intellectual tradition is that of St. Augustine. Okay? But, however, in the 13th century, and actually beginning in the 12th century, there enters a new way of, of thinking that is Aristotelian. And just to give you a little background here, Aristotle comes into the West in a very circuitous way. By way of the Islamic world, actually, okay, we have Aristotle, okay, his, his wisdom being filtered, okay, not in Western Europe, that was, was uh, replete with strife and discord in many senses, but it traveled east. Okay, and by way of, of, of translations of the Greek works into Syriac, and then into Arabic, okay, and then into Arabic, in, all the way uh, disseminated into the Iberian Peninsula. Finally, during the Reconquista, as the, as, 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 as the Iberian Peninsula is retaken for Christendom, okay, uh, the, the, these works of Aristotle that were unknown to the West, only his logical works remain, begun, begin to influence again the intellectual tradition in the West. Okay? And it's a very circuitous path. And this revolutionizes everything that is going on in the intellectual world. Okay? So we have this influx of all this new wisdom of Aristotle, translated then from Spanish into Latin. Okay? So we have this horrible game of telephone, right? from Greek to Syriac to, 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 to Aramaic to, to, to Spanish to Latin. And so finally people say, wow, this Aristotle was on to something. And we have a new philosophical system that is coherent and that deals with the philosophy of nature, that deals with logic, that deals with ethics, that deals with metaphysics, that deals with all these various branches of man's knowledge. And it's all knowledge that is from a pagan. It's from a pagan source. And how can a pagan, bereft of divine revelation, come up with such a coherent vision of reality? And this is something the West is going to have to digest. Now, Platonism has already been assimilated into Christianity. But it's going to take some time for this reconciliation of Aristotle to take place. But however, his distinctions, his emphasis on logic, his emphasis on definitions and, and distinctions has a profound effect on a young Dominican by the name of St. Thomas Aquinas. Okay, born uh, in 1224. Okay, uh, 1229, hold on, am I getting my dates? 
1274, uh, born in 1229? 1229? 
There can be nothing that is known by reason that contradicts anything that is known by faith. Faith simply takes us beyond what we can know by simply reflecting on our world. Okay? The causes that make our world to be as it is. But even then, Thomas will hold that, that philosophy is capable of demonstrating many of the truths that we can know by faith. Now, I'm going to emphasize here, okay, uh, with the little time we have left, some truths that, that are known by way of reason that cannot, that, that, are, that are also known by way of faith. Uh, and the way Luther and his rejection of the way philosophy is done in the scholastic age. And by the way, scholasticism is all of the philosophy, what? That is influenced by Aristotle. Okay, so all of medieval philosophy is not scholasticism. But scholasticism is philosophy that is done under the influence of Aristotle. Okay, and, and Thomas, okay, kind of makes Aristotle his own, although taking Neoplatonic elements, taking Platonic elements, and creating his own kind of unique philosophy. But when I speak about scholasticism, I speak about the philosophy that really begins in the 12, uh, 1250s that comes under the influence of Aristotle. Okay, now with this distinction, we're able to distinguish very clearly between the domain of, of, of faith, okay, the domain of philosophy, but see their complementary nature. And in fact, they sometimes even deal with the exact same objects. Now, there's much more to be said there, but I think this is satisfactory for now. Now, I'm going to get into something, okay? Some natural truths that Thomas felt we could demonstrate that gives us knowledge about something that's very intimate to us, how we ought to behave. Okay? And how uh, Luther, given his own philosophical background, okay, was incapable of coming up with the same conclusions, and therefore came up with a radically different notion okay, of what is uh, of the nature of moral goodness. Okay. So let, let me try to do that. Okay. So we have St. Thomas. Okay. Held that, and by the way, how much kind of time are we working on? You're doing all right. You got five minutes. Okay, good. Okay, this is good. This is this is what we need to do. Now, St. Thomas will hold some. Okay. He'll hold that man is capable of universal knowledge. Okay. And what is universal knowledge? Okay. It's not knowledge of this podium. Okay. It's not knowledge that I have. This is knowledge I have of this table. It's not the knowledge I have of this cup. But man seems capable of knowing the nature of a cup. Man has the capability not just of knowing this man and that uh, man here, but of knowing the nature of man. Okay? And without getting into the complexities of this, it seems like we presuppose this in our daily language. And in fact, the capacity to abstract and have universal knowledge is something that is presupposed in our human activity. It's necessary even for science. When you speak about the behavior of an electron, you speak in a general way that applies to the behavior of all electrons. Okay? So when we come to universal knowledge, we, we come to knowledge of the essence and natures of things. That we don't just know cat, this cat, Garfield, or Heathcliff, or what have you, but we know the nature of cat. What it means to be a cat. Okay? And this is a term, a common noun, that can be predicated of Garfield and can be predicated or said of Heathcliff. We can also come to knowledge of the nature of man. That man is fundamentally a rational animal, and we can come up with, with a, a good idea, philosophically, Thomas will hold, of what it means to be a man. What distinguishes a man okay, from lower life forms, etc., from animals, okay? well, fundamentally is rationality. 
So this capacity to abstract from particulars, to leave behind the particular conditions of this Kirkland spring water bottle, and come to the knowledge of what is a water bottle, is something that Thomas will hold is possible for man, and gives us the capacity to come to philosophical knowledge of the natures of things, including the nature of man. Now, what happens when we come to know the nature of man? We're capable of knowing that all men are ordered to an end. And therefore, we come, and this is, this is a, a little bit of an oversimplification, of knowledge of what acts are in and of themselves immoral. Because those are acts that by their very nature do not lead man to attaining his end, the end for which he is made. Okay, and ultimately he'll hold that by reason alone we can come that all men are ordered to happiness. And we all desire things, even particular goods, with this in mind. Now, now it goes without saying that we, it, 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 by philosophy we can't, it, it, man doesn't always affirm that God is his ultimate end, but we're all ordered to happiness, we're all ordered to that as our end. And therefore, when we act in certain ways, okay, there's certain acts lead us to our end of, of being fully happy. And these act, you know, acts, that in and of themselves, lead us to fulfill our nature, are generally called moral actions. However, under the influence of nominalism, okay, nominalism is a different kind of theory okay, about man's capacity to know reality. Okay. St. Thomas will hold a kind of moderate realism, okay, whereby man can come by way of experience of singular things to knowledge of universal, universal man. How all men are. What is common about all men? But William of Ockham, without getting into too much detail because I don't have uh, as much time as I need here, William of Ockham will deny man's capability to come to abstract knowledge. He'll hold that all we say when we say cat is simply a word. It's a term that can be said of multiple things that are loosely similar. And therefore, for utility and to, to get around and to function in life, we give names okay, that are predicated of similar things. But it doesn't mean that there is a common nature that binds different individual things. That there is a nature of what it means to be a cat that all cats share. That there is a common human nature that each one in this room shares in. But simply, we come up with the idea of man because I sense individuals, and I know individuals that are sort of alike. And therefore, I'll give them the title of man. Now, what does this do for our moral system? By way of reason alone, we cannot know how to behave. We cannot hold that all men must behave in this way because all men do not share the same nature. If we cannot come to knowledge of human nature and how all men are and how all men ought to behave, okay, because we can't come to universal knowledge of man and we only know singulars, Okay, then there is no absolute moral norms that we can know by reason that are applicable to each and individual man, regardless of his historical or cultural context. Therefore, we still have moral norms. Where do they come from? They come from God. They come from God. And the only law we have is the divine law. 
what God has revealed. And to hold something revolutionary. To demonstrate that there are no universal norms to be discovered in things. Okay? In the way man is. And in actions themselves. He will hold an audacious principle. Okay? He'll hold this. He'll say that God could will for you to curse his name and for you to bless his name. And that that would be morally good for you, okay, and morally evil for her. Or, no, hold on, I just botched that. Hold on. Yeah, it's a big, big dramatic thing, and I botched it. Yeah, yeah. You curse God's name, she curses God's name. And it's morally good for you, morally evil for her. He says, there's nothing in the nature of adultery that is intrinsically immoral. And God, at least theoretically, could will for it to be right for one person and not right for another. Okay? However, he has not done that. But there's nothing in the nature of things that would make that action in and of itself intrinsically immoral. And therefore, reality is reduced to God's will. Law is reduced to God's will. Arbitrarily positing how men ought to behave. Now what is difficult about this is what happens when you deny God. There is no morality left. There's no way to demonstrate by way of reason that there is something intrinsically moral or immoral with some action. Because there are only individuals. And therefore, what is each individual obliged to do? All individuals are obliged to do is desire what they want. That's what's moral. That's what you're obliged to do. You can't say, hey, you're not acting in accord with the nature we have. You're saying, there's no common nature. All I have to act in accord with is what I desire. Okay? And therefore, okay, we have a situation in which if you eradicate okay, the divine law, we're bereft of any kind of moral system. Okay? Now, let me just tie this to the present, and I'm going to tie a few things together, and actually we're going much, much deeper in other more substantive philosophical themes, like the theme of analogy, its loss, and how this relates to uh, an inability to predicate certain actions of God and man, a bunch of fun stuff next time. But let me try to, to make this relevant. You've all heard of Thomas Hobbes, have you not? Yes. And it's Leviathan. He's a British empiricist who has also, along with Luther, okay, Luther's great, great professor was Gregory Beale, and he could recite, you know, you know uh, 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 Luther, Gregory Beale on his deathbed. And Gregory Beale was a great nominalist. And this is the tradition that influenced Martin Luther. And I'm going to point out some of the key ways it influenced him a little bit later. But let me just make this relevant. Someone else who held to this nominalism is Thomas Hobbes. Okay? And, and, and simply, you can see what he does there. Okay? If we cannot come to any universal knowledge of human nature, I simply, in a state of nature, desire what I want. And what is good is what I want. However, there's a problem. Because sometimes I want stuff you want. And sometimes you want stuff I want. And I can't get what I want. And you can't get what you want. And it leads to conflict. And thus, you know, life in a state of nature is very brutish, short, nasty, miserable, right? And, but, and there's no morality. <coughs> However, I suffer the only way to secure my most basic desires, which is the desire to survive. I want to live, at least. 
okay, is to give up what he calls my right to all. My desire for anything I want. And for you to give up all your desire for everything. For us to enter into social contract. Okay? Hand over our right to everything to a sovereign. Who then says for man to behave in this way. Not on the basis of his nature, but on the basis, again, of an arbitrary judgment of his will. And the only irrationality is to not do what he wants. Now that is, is a manifestation okay, of this, this, this pernicious kind of nominalism as it affects even the theory of Hobbes. Now in Occam, it isn't quite so pernicious because he still holds to a belief in uh, God and his existence. But you can see how a denial of philosophy is going to have profound ramifications okay? and, 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 be, and lead man to in some ways have to choose between his rational life, okay, uh, his life of reason, and his life of faith. Okay. Now, that's, that's pretty much what, what I have for you. So, so in, in summary, okay, in summary, this is just a little bit of an introduction. One of the ways in which uh, you know, Martin Luther, okay, took something, okay, and, and I'm going to detail more of how he took this uh, the next time we meet. This principle of his of his philosophy, and led him to hold that our only means of accessing truth is by way of our faith. And I'm going to show you next time okay, how a loss of certain ways in which we come to truth by reason ultimately even undermine his faith itself. Okay, And that's where I'm going. But here we're left on this edge. This edge of this great thinker who is left with faith alone bereft of to try to explain reality. And what you can't see are the philosophical presuppositions that he has, his nominalism, and how it affects his concept of God. His concept of God, who is omnipotent, and therefore capable of willing anything. Ultimately, for adultery to be good for one person and bad for another. Whereas for Thomas... He cannot do that. Why? Because we have a universal human nature, and it would be violating that nature if he would will for one person to act in accord with that nature and for it to be morally good, and another not. But if you eradicate human nature itself, there's no problem in willing for the same action to be good for one and not good for another. Because there's no foundation for our morality in our nature that can be understood. Because of his nominalism and not being able to come to universal knowledge, it undermines the very possibility of any kind of objective morality that is not exclusively what God has dictated arbitrarily. Okay, and, and this is a profound effect. Okay, and I'm going to show now in the next lecture. Not now. We'll get out of here. Okay. Some of the other ways, as he's hanging by the thread uh, of, his faith, of, of just his faith, you know, faith alone. Some of the other ways in which his rejection of certain philosophical presuppositions ultimately prevent him even from assenting to the Catholic teaching as such. Okay. And we can look at that more. But I did want to present you a little bit with some of his background, okay? Some of the way in which the nominalism that was taught, okay, affected Occam, and then by way of Occam affected Luther, 
And uh, this rejection now of faith and reason, this split that has occurred, that isolates man and leaves him with his faith alone. And a rejection of his faith alone also, therefore, will be a rejection of what can be known, uh, uh, a rejection of uh, his faith alone leads to an ability of man uh, to be to 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 uh, to not come to any knowledge uh, about anything in a universal sense. Okay. Yeah, there's whole there's whole bunch of other things. Here. Okay. So this is just scratching the surface. I kind of feel one. You know, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to stop here. But we'll have a chance to do it again. We'll have a chance a week from tonight. And so I look forward to that opportunity. I, I have some handouts there. I have some text for you to look at. And, and let, next time we're going to go, go into the various, very interesting topic of how a loss of the philosophical concept of analogy prevents Martin Luther from coming to, to, uh, to a, a assent to the conclusion of how man and God can cooperate in the production of some action, which leads to his inability to recognize man and his freedom. There we go. Okay, our usual rules apply. Uh, five minutes max. We'll go along on the questions. Maximum of five questions. Make sure you have one question and uh, it has a question mark on the end. This is for more marks? Yeah, that's right. I don't know if I'm going to ask this the right way. No, it's okay. I'm going to Louder. Do you think that the problems we're facing today in this country in terms of what I the American yeah. ideal sure, sure, sure. philosophically are the results of what you're talking about. Yeah. If you talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it seems to me that what's happening is everybody's doing what makes them happy. And so I guess what I'm asking is, yeah. are we in part is the American ideal in part, a large part, to blame for what's going on today in the West in general? Well, okay. This is a beauty pageant question. No, no, it's a great question. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the I say anything about gay marriage. Well, it seems to me that, I read online, you know, uh, that the, yeah. the American yeah. ideal is the logical outcome of the Protestant ideal about religious freedom and this idea that I will do what my conscience tells me. That's right. That's more than one sentence. Okay. okay. Fair enough. Let, 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 let me try. Let me try to take a stab at it. Okay. Let me try to take a stab at it. Okay. So, so what do we have in, in our country? Okay. We have rights. We have, we have an inalienable right. Okay. But what is a right if it's not founded on our nature? Okay. For Thomas, all rights. Okay. Come from an understanding of how men has been made natural. And from an analysis of that, we can see how men ought to be and what ought to be attributed to him as, as, as a rational animal. Now, in some ways, the enlightened Hobbes and then Locke, okay, and other people that are part of the philosophical foundation of our country, do have a certain kind of nominalism. And therefore, these rights are not tied to our nature as much as they are tied to the founding fathers who are the authority that has been given to them by the people who have posited these rights. Now, I would hold that whenever okay, that is the foundation okay, of our rights, it's a faulty foundation. Because it's founded on people, on the will of people, giving their authority in some ways to sovereigns. And sovereigns positing these rights. 
there's a certain arbitrary component. And if what the sovereign posits, positive law, is not rooted in natural law, there's always going to be a problem. Okay? And, and that is something I think that, that, that we need to rediscover, is the foundation of positive law, that is the law of our country, has to be, if it's, if it's to be legitimate, always founded on natural law. Okay, and this is even, and it makes sense. I mean, even our right to civil disobedience is tied to that. So I mentioned Hobbes, and for Hobbes, there's no civil disobedience. Now Locke was a little different, because if, if the only way you have to organize societies is, is to abdicate all of your, 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 your rights and give them over to the sovereign, sovereign pauses law in an arbitrary way, you're obliged to follow it. Your very survival is dependent on it. And so to not follow it is to act irrationally. Whereas, in a concept of, of positive law, okay, if law, positive law is rooted in natural law, we have a theory of civil disobedience. You're not obliged to follow a bad law. And what makes a bad law? It's, it, you know, is, is, it, 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 is it's lack of conformity to the Constitution? In some ways, that's fine, as long as what we have in our Constitution, and, and there may, it could be an argument made for this, is rooted on a deeper authority. The authority of what? The authority of our nature as it can be known. Okay? And that's the only authority really to find. And that is the grounding of international law. Okay? Because international law, if, if it's going to have any binding power, okay, has to be rooted in a common nature. Okay? And, 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 and this is important because, because if we have all we have with, with Occam and then ultimately with Luther is simply what God says. Well, what about those people who think Allah says Okay? And it conflicts with what God says. What authority do you turn to? You turn to the authority of power and who can assert their will. Okay, Instead of maybe a, a, a reasonable place for us to find some common ground, you say, okay, look, you don't assent to the same religious creed that I do, but we both have the same nature. And minimally, any law for it to be just and binding ought to follow upon that nature which can be known, and let's let's see what we can know about it by way of reason. Or Master McGuire, if you could comment briefly on the uh, effect of the plane. Uh, yeah. the oh, that, that's a very good that's question. That's what you left out. Oh, boy, I'm really glad you asked that question. <laughs> this was something that was a big thing for me uh, in grad school, particularly when I was preparing for my doctoral comps in medieval history. Um, what the gentleman is referring to is, of course, the Black Death of 1348, which swept across not only Western Europe, but it actually began in the East. Which William, William of Ockham died of. William of Ockham. So there's a little connection there. In 1349, I know my dates. <laughs> <laughs> he, he died of Black Death. 1349. So what the question refers to is, in fact, um, a relatively well-established historiographical theory that, in fact, the Black Plague, in, in some sense, reduced the prestige of the Catholic Church as an institution and paved the way for Luther. Now, in, in point of fact, I, I think modern scholarship has effectively um, debunked this idea. I, well, I, I had one professor who was rather terse on this point, an old Englishman who said, Black death is not really important at all because all those people would be dead by now anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's a good point. 
the, the consensus, the consensus in historiography right now is, in fact, even though the Black Death was a particularly dramatic event, I mean, the, the modern and uh, very recent estimates of the mortality have actually raised the the casualty rates to around 75 percent, uh, possibly in Western Europe. But the, the the effects seem to be, on the one hand, a very short-term psychological effect, which can be detected in art and poetry. And on the other time, a long-term economic effect, which was actually beneficial for Western Europe. There seems to have been a long-term economic effect which improved the conditions of, of the peasantry in Western Europe. And aside from that, it, it's very, very hard to demonstrate the existence of any um, reduction in the prestige of the church that can be in any way attributed to the Black Death. At least as far as sources go, there's no real way to demonstrate a connection between the Black Death and a reduction in the prestige of the church at all, as, as far as anyone can find. But it's a very good question because the assumption was, oh my gosh, if you, if you have three quarters of the people dying, you know, this must be something that would get them to question the very foundations of their life and their society. And there's, you know, why couldn't God have prevented this? Why can't the church give us a good answer? But that kind of existential questioning just doesn't seem to happen in the 14th century, at least not as a result of the Black Death. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a very good question. I'm glad you asked it. But that, that if the Black Death didn't, you lose 75% of your scholars and your hierarchy and your organization. Throughout, it's got to upset the part of the power balance. You'd think, but, but it, it doesn't. I mean, you'd think it would, but there's no evidence that the balance of power was upset at all by the Black Death. Um, though those who were powerful remained powerful, those who weren't remained not powerful. And it just, there's no evidence that, that kind of, any kind of real social upheaval really takes place there. Do you see any relationship between uh, the problems we have, uh, not only in this country, but in society in general uh, today, as being the result, perhaps, of uh, our universities producing people who are supposedly very, very well educated, but the thought process is not studied uh, in, by all the people in all universities. Reasoning is not in itself with that. People are full of uh, information that they have learned um, a lot about history, they have a lot of facts, they can quote a lot of uh, things that uh, impress a lot of people, but, but they don't come to good conclusions. And that's about universal knowledge? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bunch of isolated patina. No, but you can listen to things, you can listen to things on, in the news. My question is, the conclusions a lot of political leaders and people are coming to, could this be the result of a lack of education in the reasoning process? Inductive, inductive reasoning, people don't even know what such things are. Oh, certainly. Yeah, no, I think I remember reading an article by um, Frederick Wilhelmsen talking about the kind of education that they got in, in Catholic universities prior to the Second World War. And he says all the, he and his Catholic comrades, when they were fighting in, in the Second World War in Europe, those who had attended Catholic universities in the, the U.S. Army Officer Corps, those who had gone to places like Marquette or St. Louis University, Fordham, Catholic University, Georgetown, any of these places, they could speak the same philosophical language. They could actually reason together, even though they hadn't necessarily read the same texts or studied with the same professors. They had a, a common understanding of reality that they had received through the, the, the spectacular education in a Thomistic method of reasoning that you would have gotten in a Catholic university in the first half of the 20th century. Now, in, in secular universities earlier in the 20th century, that probably wasn't done. And since the 60s, it hasn't been done in Catholic universities either. So I, I think what, what you're saying is absolutely true. Reasoning is not something that's, that's taught or, or inculcated as a habit of mind in people anymore. 
And kind of, I mean, yeah. just, just, just to piggyback on that, I mean, even with the onset of the Enlightenment, you have the study kind of the formulation of encyclopedias of knowledge, right? And so, so what becomes a dominant is, you know, even Locke, you know, he reduced everything to perceptions, okay? In knowledge of individuals, right? And without any knowledge of, of universals, any universal knowledge about the, the, you know, that you could derive from particulars by way of some kind of inductive method, okay? Now, if that's all you know, it makes sense, you know? That you would have all of these different kind of you know school you know knowledge is the knowledge of collection of facts right. and, and that's what it's reduced to you know and that's what you study and that's why when you have uh, uh, you don't have theology classes you have uh, 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 degrees in religious studies and so there's no you just study all the details uh, you know, some some of the details not all the details but the studies of Christianity without any means of discriminating what is to be preferred. Now, between these studies. But the highest end is just to study and to accumulate a greater wealth of factual knowledge without any ability to assess it as to its viability or as to its, as to its, 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 its truth. Anyway. What you say applies to priests also? Well, I mean, I'm not certain. I mean, well, it depends. It depends. I mean, I, I think that, that the state of education. I mean, and, and that's actually. I mean, something that the church is trying to kind of seek a renewal, uh, a renewal. And this is what the gentleman mentioned. You know, the education, the education today. Okay, uh, there was a whole Thomistic reform that happened in the late 19th century, uh, that extended all the way up until really the Second Vatican Council, that, that really created a great informed. Uh, late you know, body of the lady, body of the priest. Uh, but certainly, I think their education is very much uh, uh, basically symbolic of what's going on in the culture at large. You know, and, and there's been an attempt, you know, uh, uh, to, to reform you know, certain seminary education, to kind of get back to the basics. But but it's a slow process. It's happening, and I see it happening. My, my twin brother's a seminarian now, uh, and, and studying for the priesthood, and he's in a very good seminary, you know, in Denver, where they're trying to they're trying to do some of these things. They're trying to uh, kind of get back to an authentic education where where truth is seen as knowable and and, and, uh, and able to while still keeping its transcendental mysterious uh, element of it. Salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to the revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Christ is risen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.